and welcome to Lost in Science Lockdown Edition, or one episode of Lockdown Edition. How are you guys, Claire and Stu? Great. Well, I think. I mean, I'm I'm lost in isolation. That sort yeah. of thing. Yeah. Stu, are you socially distant? I'm I'm socially distant. I'm uh, prepared with all my social media so I can keep in touch. To produce the show remotely. Yes. I should point out that, yeah, we're not in the same room together as we normally are. We are in our own houses uh, with our own microphones and our own pets in the background, as I'm sure we'll find out soon. I've locked mine out for now. Yeah, yes, actually, my my pet is in, yeah. And so, of course, the reason we're doing this is, of course, you do coronavirus and COVID-19, and that is what we'll be talking about today. I think we have three COVID-related stories. Is that correct? Yeah. I mean, there isn't there isn't much else going on in the news. I mean, there probably is, but you know, everyone is pretty you know has a laser focus on um, COVID nineteen. And the only other science news that I've seen um, to come out recently is a story about an astrophysicist getting magnets stuck up his nose in the middle of a pandemic. So, well, I mean, to be fair, um, that was. Coronavirus related as well. He was trying to develop a device that would detect when your hand got near your face and involved him sticking mangas up his nose. <laughs> and then the device that he made didn't even work. It was actually buzzing the whole time unless his, his hand was near his face. So I love the ingenuity, but yeah, that was definitely one of the biggest lols of the week for me anyway. Yeah. So what have you got then to talk to us about? This week, Claire. One of the very few benefits of this pandemic is that a lot of science and research has gone online for free, becoming accessible to anybody who wants to read it. And one of those articles was published recently in the New England Journal of Medicine, and it's all about how long the coronavirus that we know can last on different surfaces. So I'm going to have a look at look at that and how we can apply that to making our homes as safe as can be. Sounds great. And Stu, what have you got coming up for us? Well, related to scientists all sharing their research at the moment, I'm going to have a look at the development or potential development of a vaccine for COVID-19. What are people doing? How do you even develop a vaccine? Why do we have to get a vaccine for this virus? And the issues related to actually developing a vaccine as quickly as possible, because these things do take a lot of time. And part of the reason they take a lot of time is a lot of testing that's involved. So I'm going to have a look a little, a little bit about what's involved and the sort of thing people are working on at the moment. Great. And speaking of things people are working on and testing and that kind of stuff, I'm going to look at some of the things that aren't working as well as they could in this current pandemic. And in particular, I'm going to focus on the recent controversy about the the drugs chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, the um, anti-malarial drugs that have gotten a lot of excitement when Donald Trump said that they would be a cure for COVID-19. And I'm going to have a look at what has actually happened there, what does the evidence say, and, yeah, what has the impact been of this kind of people jumping to conclusions? So, yeah, that is our all-COVID, all-corona show for you. Plenty of good science in a time of isolation. So, on with the show. Science. The Final Frontier. Thank you. 
These are the voyages of Lost in Science, our ongoing mission to explain strange new words, to seek out new science and new explanations, to boldly go where no radio has gone before. Okay, so you know how it is. It's the middle of a pandemic and the nerds start talking about what the right name for something is. You know, um, I'm so sorry, but I'm going to have to nerd out right now and start us off with a little bit of nomenclature as we sometimes we like to do on Lost in Science. We like to get into the nomenclature. So let's start with coronavirus. So coronavirus, uh, this is a group of different types of viruses that cause different types of illnesses. It includes the SARS and MERS and the current coronavirus that we have in our world right now. So if you want to refer to the virus that is literally infecting our world, it has a more specific name. You would call it SARS-CoV-2 virus. So that's sort of like referring to it by its first name. That is the virus's actual name. So that means that COVID-19, which we are all familiar with using now, that actually refers to the illness the virus is causing. So you think along the lines of HIV virus, which causes AIDS. So it's two different things. One is the virus, one is the disease. So there it is. Now, Stu spoke last week about how viruses, they can't live for very long outside of a warm body with a lot of cells, but... Different viruses can last for different lengths of time outside the body. And when I like, won't say before they die, because as Stu was talking last week, they're not alive, so they can't die. So maybe say the length that they're infectious or um, until they become inert or no longer infectious or something along those lines. So in correspondence recorded in the New England Journal of Medicine, Around 10 days ago, scientists from two universities in the USA published um, a paper or um, correspondence, not exactly a whole paper, about how long the current coronavirus can last on surfaces outside of the body. Now, before I go into the research, I want to sort of like put a pin in that, sidestep a little bit, and just remind everyone that right now journals like the Lancet and the New England Journal of Medicine, they're all removing their paywalls for all COVID-19 content and developing these resource centres. I don't know if you guys have seen that or have Yeah, it's been a great much... kind of development, I think, to make this sort of stuff available. And not just it's not just the scientific journals, a lot of newspapers and that sort of thing are doing it as well, which is always promising to see. Yeah, a lot of newspapers are removing their paywalls for specific COVID-19 content, which is excellent because, you know, we are in a time of a pandemic, a time of crisis. So, you know, this this information, scientific, societal, economic, it should be available to everyone. So, yeah, if you are keen to brush up on the science and learn as much as you can and read the expert advice right now, it's free. Okay, so sidestepping back to where I was. How long does the coronavirus or SARS-CoV-2 on surfaces for? So the researchers tested five different materials. Well, five different situations with coronavirus. They looked at how long it stuck around as an aerosol, so as a particle in the air, how long it stuck around on plastic, 
how long it stuck around on stainless steel, on copper, and also cardboard. So they tested these materials as they're sort of the ones you're most likely to encounter on a day-to-day basis. Obviously aerosols in the air, but, you know, stainless steel door handles, plastics everywhere, obviously, but are used in a lot of furnitures, especially on public transport and whatnot. And cardboard's obviously an important thing for us as well for food and packaging and postage. Now, the results were quite interesting. In the air, the coronavirus, the SARS-CoV-2, can last for approximately three hours until there's no more infectious particles. So three hours in the air. But when it is on surfaces, it lasts for longer. So three hours, I've got to say, that's a long time to be floating around in the air. Yeah, like if you've got someone who's been in a room or something mm. like that. Yeah, it is a little bit worrying, isn't it? Yeah, or you're in a public place like, or you're going, you're 50 percent enclosed place like a supermarket, that sort of thing. Mm. Mm. So yeah, three hours in the air and then four hours on copper surfaces. Okay. I mean, there's not that many copper surfaces around, but four hours on copper surfaces. Then it sort of jumped up quite a lot when you start looking at other surfaces like cardboard. So the coronavirus actually was found on cardboard up to 24 hours later. So it's quite a long time. And then up to three days later on stainless steel and plastic surfaces. So, yeah, it was interesting reading this and sort of thinking about what the difference is between four hours for copper and three days for stainless steel. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not exactly sure why that would be. Copper's pretty reactive with other things and stainless steel is designed not to be. So if copper has a direct effect on the virus and, and somehow stops it from being functional, that's really all that surprising. It's also an, an antibacterial agent as well. In microbiology, using copper is a very common way to kill potential pathogens. So... Not that surprising that it's a short-lived thing on copper. So interestingly, this was under experimental conditions of 21 to 23 degrees Celsius temperature and 40% humidity. So I do wonder if, if you change you know, those conditions, like what that would do to the virus as well, or maybe it wouldn't do anything. So the interesting thing is also, I mean, now that we know what the behavior of the virus on certain surfaces are, then we can apply this to our home life. So... Notice what in your house is used often, maybe light switches, keyboards, your mouse, bench tops, fridge handles, doorknobs. They're all made out of either stainless steel or plastic, which means, you know, the virus can potentially live on them for up to three days. Mm-hmm. And we bring plastic and cardboard packaging home into the house. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So from the supermarket, you've got cardboard and plastic packaging coming into the house so you might want to think about maybe ways of creating either a quarantine zone for groceries maybe in the garage or at the back of your house or something for example if you buy cardboard cereal box or uh, you buy you know some stainless steel tins or something like that you can leave them outside for three days before you bring them into the house without risking cross-contamination getting into the house Or, you know, if that's not possible, you can always use soap detergent or like a 60% plus alcohol-based cleaner and wash them down before you put your groceries away. And yeah, we can start applying the aseptic technique and the scientific research to make our houses safer from the coronavirus. I'm Maggie Adair and Pocock, and you're listening to Lost in Science on 3CR. 
One of the big problems with the COVID-19 infection is that new. it hasn't been a human disease problem up until now, even though related viruses have. And I mentioned last week that coronaviruses have given people illnesses before, just nothing particularly severe. And they probably will continue to into the future. So some of the common colds that go around from year to year are actually caused by coronaviruses, but obviously not the same one that causes COVID-19. And it's actually rhinoviruses that cause most common colds, which is not a major problem, but it is still a virus. Now, one of the issues with this strain of coronavirus is that doctors and medical scientists don't really have a good idea or an understanding of exactly the physiological action of the virus that causes people to get sick. So that means they're quite limited in treatments they can give people. So other than helping them breathe more easily, lowering their fever and reducing their discomfort, they're basically letting them have bed rest until they recover on their own, which is not much of a treatment if you think about it. Um, it's pretty much the advice for getting over common colds and things like that as well. So because viruses are not really alive in the same way things like bacterial cells are, it's much harder to target them with specific drugs like antibiotics, which disrupt the metabolism of the bacteria that they're attacking. So viruses don't have a metabolism. They hide the metabolism of their host instead. And if we disrupt that, then that's disrupting us if we actually get sick. So the best way to fight against viral infections is by de developing vaccines for them, which was one of the great triumphs of medical science in the 20th century, where diseases like polio and measles were almost completely eradicated through widespread vaccination programs. And this prevented millions of deaths worldwide and reduced other poor health outcomes caused by these contagious viral diseases by preparing immune systems to recognise a virus early and fight back. As we know with the common cold, though, not all viruses can be fought with vaccines. For example, because they mutate too quickly for a vaccine to be developed mm. before they change again. Obviously, scientists around the world are currently racing to develop uh, effective vac vaccines against the virus that causes COVID-19. And there are more than 50 potential antiviral candidates ready being tested around the world in various places. There's a team from, is it the University of Queensland who are looking into a COVID-19 vaccine? Yeah, and there's, there's one in America that's currently already being tested. In the UK, they're looking into it. I mean, everyone's basically yeah looking at it sharing information yeah. operating with each other which is quite a nice you know change for a lot of science it's usually focused on getting your paper published first but i think everyone's just more interested in getting a vaccine that works rather than who gets the publishing rights so there are multiple ways of making an antiviral vaccine including using inactivated viruses so an inactivated virus is incapable of infecting a host cell but they provide the immune system with a target that they can attack. And when the immune system attacks a particular viral target, it produces antibodies that remember the inactive virus. And if they come in contact with something like it again, the immune system ramps up production of those specific antibodies to fight it off. 
you've probably read that there are a couple of different polio vaccines. The SALK polio vaccine is this kind of vaccine. It's an inactive viral vaccine. There's also uh, commonly used influenza vaccines that are inactive viruses as well. They're not particularly effective if the outer coating of the virus mutates too quickly. So the virus mm. changes too much. The immune system doesn't recognise it and can't, it can't really help in the future. So another form of vaccine uses what they call attenuated or weakened viruses, which is versions of the infective virus that cause very mild symptoms or sometimes even no symptoms at all, but they train the immune system to recognise other strains of those viruses as well. So the other polio vaccine, the Sabin vaccine, is one of these, and that can actually be taken orally instead of injected. There's another one, the 2009 version of an H1N1 vaccine was another one which could be delivered without an injection. That was actually a nasal spray. You just squirt it up your nose and that would vaccinate you against... Yeah, so it's a different delivery method that's potential as well. But, of course, with developing new medical treatments, these vaccine candidates have to be tested to see if they work, which is usually done on animal subjects before they move on to human. Some of these candidates for vaccines are already in the animal testing phase. issue with that is animals are not humans, so the effect on an animal is not necessarily going to be the as the effect on a human. So they've got to look for side effects, make sure it's effective, those things. When testing a vaccine, it usually proceeds by giving human test subjects a placebo with no active ingredient or a dose of a vaccine without the patient knowing which one they were given. And then the researchers just wait around Mm. and see who gets sick and see if anyone shows up side effects. That takes months because they're not deliberately catching the disease or anything. They're just going about their regular daily lives and they just sort of retrospectively go, oh, you got sick, you didn't get sick, you were exposed to this, you were exposed to that, and figure it out in hindsight. Now, if if a vaccine's effective under those conditions, then it's produced for distribution to the public and there's no side effects as, you know, it works and all of that sort of stuff. But because of the urgency of the current situation, some researchers are calling for young, healthy volunteers to undertake deliberate infection tests. So they would basically get people who are otherwise completely healthy to be vaccinated and then be exposed deliberately to the virus that causes COVID-19, and then they could see who got sick and who didn't, and that would be a reasonable test of the vaccine. Now, the reason they're calling for younger people is because there's a much, much lower rate of mortality with young people Very, very, very few people who are under 20 and below that get many symptoms at all. And the ones who do usually have some other, what they call a comorbidity, which means they've got some other health problem already. So what they're trying to do is maybe screen for people who have no other health problems and hopefully they will pull through okay and they'll just be able to see if they're infected, which basically means testing their blood for N. Even if they're asymptomatic, they'll still be able to tell, whereas just waiting around to see who gets sick is not really going to be fast enough for anyone to quickly get anything solved. This is still going to take probably 12 to 18 months before there is a vaccine for this. So the time frames are still quite long before we get anything that's actually going to be on the market that's a vaccine against it. And obviously the issue with that is that if people already have had it by that time, 
it's not going to help them. It's only going to help people who haven't got it in the meantime. So ultimately, it's still just as important to stay healthy and try and avoid catching or developing COVID-19. And maybe at some point down the track, we'll get a vaccine developed. But it just shows, I think, you know, there's obviously ethical questions about testing in this way and it's never really been done before with humans so it just kind of shows how quickly research is proceeding that people are already sort of saying maybe we should do this thing that we've never even done before i'm theoretical physicist sean carroll and you're listening to lost in science which is spreading scientific knowledge across multiple branches of the wave function of the universe Okay, yes, so we are talking about COVID-19 and how science responds. And as Stu has said, there is a lot of testing that needs to be done. Um, Science doesn't have all the answers yet to this new virus. And this means that it is really easy for misinformation to get a foothold. And so I'm going to have a bit of a look at an example of how, well, I'm not going to say things can go wrong, but how it might not work the way that we would like. Yeah, I mean, everyone, everyone wants there to be a quick fix, right? Yeah. Now, I should just point out that this information could all change in a few days because things are moving very fast. The information here is as accurate as possible at the time that we're recording this. Um, now, anyway, the thing I'm talking about is the recent story uh, with the, the rumour that the anti-malarial drugs chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine could help in treating COVID-19. Now, these got the world's attention when US President Donald Trump, always a source of reliable news, described them as a game changer, which led to a rush on these drugs in many countries. It caused shortages and even some deaths. And yet, as far as we know, these drugs are still very far from being proven. Now, chloroquine, it was originally discovered a long time ago, back in 1934. It's an analogue of quinine, which you may have heard of. That is an anti-malaria drug famously derived from the yeah. bark of the chinchona plant of Peru. Mm-hmm. Uh, it is used to treat malaria. It's also found in tonic water for your gin and tonic. It's, it's fluoro. It's fluoro as well. Yeah, it glows in the dark. It glows um, in the dark. So chloroquine is an analogue of quinine, and it's, it has been observed in the past to have antiviral properties, and there has been in vitro testing on coronaviruses in the past, and this is in the wake of the SARS epidemic, they did some tests on different coronaviruses of this chloroquine. It's not quite sure how it works, more like gather, it, they talk about how it raises the pH of the acidic parts of the cells where the virus needs to get in to multiply. So that's what it seems to do to attack the viruses. It does other stuff as well, of course. As I said, it's used for malaria. It also affects heart rhythm, which is why it can be a dangerous drug to take. Right. And Mm. hence some of the problems with people um, taking it unauthorized. And it also is used in some autoimmune disease such as lupus and rheumatoid arthritis. But we are talking about the current COVID-19 So when the new coronavirus came along, of course, many drugs have been tried as treatment because there is a bit of desperation, and this includes chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine, which is another similar drug. But there has been very little proper research on whether either of these drugs work. So before I said that there had been some in vitro testing, now in vitro just means that it's tested in a dish in the laboratory, not actually in living organisms. So to find out whether the drug works, as Stu has explained, it needs to be tested in clinical trials in real human beings, in real patients. 
Now, on 17th of March, a French team released a paper about a clinical trial that they had conducted, which claimed to show that hydroxychloroquine cured patients of COVID-19 within five to six days, especially when combined with the antibiotic azithromycin, which was added to prevent bacterial infections. And this is the study that basically kicked off all the recent hysteria, which is specifically Trump's announcements. Trouble is that the paper does seem to be pretty poor quality. It was an open-label study, which means that it was not blinded, so people knew what they were getting. The researchers knew who which patients received which treatment. It was a very small study. There were six people who were given the combination of the hydroxychloroquine and azithromycin. 20 were given just hydroxychloroquine alone, and 16 were in a control group. Now, the six in the combination group, they did fare much better in the study, but... This excluded people who had been assigned to that arm who dropped out of the study from things like uh, being too sick or dying (laughs) or having bad side effects. So when you add those back in, the results are a little bit different. And on top of that, some Australian researchers, Gaten Bergio and Rachel Dunlop, realised that there was some inconsistent testing of the control group in the study, which made it really hard to interpret and trust the results. So it's really an unreliable study, yet has led to these big conclusions. It has since been followed up. The French team that produced it, they have since put out another study of 80 people, again, claiming to have gotten good results. Now, 80 people sounds better than the original study. However, this one didn't Mm. even have a control group. So it's really hard to tell whether the drug made a difference. Yeah, this is the quality of research that's coming out. Meanwhile, there is only one other published clinical trial on the hydroxychloroquine for COVID-19, and that one was done in China. It was another small trial, only had 30 patients, but it found there was no benefit from the drug. So they kind of got contrasting results. And that's basically all we've got. Uh, There are a lot of anecdotes, of course, both from treatments in China and now increasingly from the United States. Uh, And as anecdotes tend to do, they kind of exaggerate the situation. They paint it as a miracle cure. And this is where things start to get a bit messy. Because in the US, as always on every issue, there is a very strong political polarisation. You have the Republicans uh, largely leaning towards opening up the economy, removing quarantines, opening everything up. Uh, The Democrats are then going the other way, leaning towards increasingly shutting things down. So a miracle cure then, as this is claimed to be, basically gives the conservatives what they're looking for. It's an alternative to self-isolation and social distancing. Basically it says, mm. oh, look, we can reopen everything. We have this amazing cure. So it's no surprise that some of the, these positive reports, like these positive reports about the French study, um, so these anecdotes, they were heavily promoted on Fox News, which is possibly where Trump right. would have heard about it. It's also been pushed by some Silicon Valley tech bros, but that's another issue as well. This whole (laughs) pandemic is a mess. Anyway, with this pressure, the FDA has recently approved giving hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine emergency use authorization, which means, you know, it hasn't gone through all the regular hoops, but they've approved it for emergency use. So that's where we're at politically. Science is progressing in its own way. The WHO has included these drugs in its mega trial that it's doing of various treatments, but that is too slow for the political process. Look, it's impossible to say at the moment whether or not it works, but I guess there there was that Chinese trial which had very unimpressive results, which at least suggests that even if these drugs do work, they're not a miracle cure. I mean, if there was a miracle cure, you would have seen it even in a small trial like that. 
And, you know, I found some reports about hydroxychloroquine being used in hospitals in the US. Um, I tracked down the names of some and they are still reporting plenty of sick people and people dying from COVID-19. Yeah, so meanwhile, as I said, the result of this thing being used in an uncontrolled fashion, it is having real harm. As I said, it can cause heart problems. So people have died in Nigeria from overdosing on this drug. There was a big rush on chloroquine, which is used there as an anti-malarial drug. There was an elderly couple in the United States who found some in their house that had been used as a fish medicine. And they took that and uh, no. the husband died. <gasps> and oh, that's tragic it is it is really terrible and even here there's you know there's shortages of the drug as i said it's used for other conditions i have friends who have rheumatoid arthritis who now can't get this drug that they've been depending on so this all happens when science i guess is pushed aside for politics now look maybe as i said this could all change maybe we will find that there is good evidence maybe these drugs do have a strong effect and this will all end up being fine but in the meantime we have the situation where yeah politics is trumping science and uh the consequences are affecting many people in the world all we can hope is that science eventually wins out i guess all right and that is it for this week's episode of lost in science in lockdown Lost in Science is normally recorded in the studios of 3CR, but here it's recorded at the homes of Claire, Stu and Chris. Um, <laughs> I think we're all in the lands of the Wundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, however. And the show, as always, is recorded across the Australia on the Community Radio Network with the support of the Community Broadcasting Corporation. We would love you still to get in touch with us. We're still available on the email at lostinsight at gmail.com. You can still find us on Facebook at Lost in Science on 3CR. You can still run us on Twitter. We are at Lost in Science 1. You can find us on your podcast app where you can give us a rating and review and make us look good and help other people to find us. Or you can just listen to us wherever you're listening to this now. So come back next week to hear more tales from the self social isolation distancing when Claire, Stu and Chris get lost Lost in fire. (laughs) Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.